Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. I would prefer not to is Bartleby's slogan, as familiar on Herman Melville t-shirts as the words that open Melville's Moby Dick, call me Ishmael. But how different the short story, Bartleby the Scrivener, from the great American novel, except that they're both perfect Melville in his 200th birthday season. Bartleby appeared two years after Moby Dick in 1853 from Melville still young at 34, It is 30 pages instead of 600, far removed from the high seas, and more nearly manageable in one radio hour. Bartleby himself is a cadaverous and solitary young copyist, pre-Xerox machines, in a claustrophobic Wall Street law office. He is the white-collar drone who's going to opt out, prefer not to, refusing orders, meaning what? Here's the uncanny feel of Bartleby the Scrivener. The English-American movie star James Mason recorded the story in 1962 in the voice of the Wall Street lawyer who narrates the tale of Bartleby. I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last 30 years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. I mean the law copyists, or scriveners. At the period just preceding the advent of Bartleby, I had two persons as copyists in my employment and a promising lad as an office boy. First, turkey. Second, nippers. Third, ginger nut. These may seem names, the like of which are not usually found in the directory. In truth, they were nicknames, mutually conferred upon each other by my three clerks. There was now great work for Scriveners. Not only must I push the clerks already with me, but I must have additional help. In answer to my advertisement, a motionless young man one morning stood upon my office threshold, the door being open for it was summer. I can see that figure now. Pallidly neat pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. It was Bartleby. Will we take him as a one-man Occupy protest? Perhaps a figure of extreme depression? We're open on this program to the argument that Bartleby stands for black America in the 19th century. Also that he spoke for Melville himself, a prophetic artist facing the futility of his writing vocation which would bring him almost nothing in the way of money, praise, or readership in his lifetime. We'll be dipping back into that James Mason, James Mason version of Bartleby. But now, no further ado, Jay Perini and his version of Melville. Jay Perini, poet, historian, novelist himself. You wrote an unusual biography slash novel around Herman Melville 10 years ago titled The Passages of H.M., Jay Perini, Unusual, not least because the record in letters and diaries is so thin. How's now to appreciate what Melville was doing in Bartleby the Scrivener? Well, good to be on the show, Christopher. Thank you, Jay. Welcome. 
And I'm so glad that um, we're talking about Bartleby because I think it's the, the right way to enter this amazing catacomb of Herman Melville's mind. Um, well, thank you. you know, I, I've been, I've been re, you know, I'm a real Melvillian. I've been reading him for 50 years, um, actually more. I was remembering just today that I first, I was looking at my old college textbook and I first read Bartleby the Scribner when I was a freshman. And mm. um, I see it all underlined in all my crazy notes in the margin. <laughs> And that's over 55 years ago or something like that. And I've probably read it, you know, 30, 40, 50 times in the intervening half a century. And I'm now convinced that it's a, that, you know, it's a classic work, which means it's a true classic, which means it can't be read. It can only be reread. That's my definition of a classic, a work that can only be reread. And every time I've come back to this, I think I've got it now. Oh, I think it's about... Uh, Scriveners, and a Scrivener is a low-rent writer uh, who just copies other writers, and Melville was obsessed with the idea that he might be seen to be imitating other writers, or worse, himself, because he did write, you know, four or five novels of the sea in a row in in quick succession. And uh, the early ones were pretty successful. His first one, Taipei, you know, think about it. Here, it's a really semi-autobiographical account, which I go into in my novel, about him being captured by a tribe of bisexual cannibals. It's such a part, shall we say. Um, it's, it's really the opposite of a Scribner, a man captured by bisexual cannibals on the South Sea Island. In his great novel, the greatest American novel probably ever written, Moby Dick, he just lets it fly over 600 pages of philosophy, describing human interactions in the most complex moral way. Well, that came to nothing. And he wrote Bartleby Hmm. the Scrivener while he was correcting the proofs of Moby Dick. Jerry Prini, we've got to do something about your phone line, but let me just say, in your your book, The Passages of H.N., you set yourself, as very few biographers can, into the imagination of the man, and specifically his sense of his vocation as a writer. What, what piece of that is Bartleby? Well, Bartleby is, like I said, a low-rent version of a writer. What does Bartleby do as a scrivener? He's hired to just copy. He's a sort of human Xerox machine. He copies and copies and copies legal documents. Um, that is the most soul-destroying work one can imagine. And in a weird way, I think Melville in his own life thought it was soul-destroying for him to simply copy again and again his own experiences as he, as he sort of relives his seafaring experience. And so, in many ways, Bartleby is a cry from the heart of this man who's feeling immense frustration and is also feeling terrible alienation from the modern world. Hmm. And this is where Bartleby—am I coming through clearly on the line now? Yeah, very good. Um, Oh, good. So as long as I'm going through clearly, like I'm saying, I think that, um, you know, Bartleby is this cry of the heart saying, not me, not this time. I'm not going to, I would prefer not simply to write over and over again the same seafaring story. I want to be a philosopher. I want to go deep. I want to talk about human alienation at its most poignant and terrible uh, texture, in that texture. And that's what he gets in Bartleby. I mean, Bartleby represents the isolated, alienated, modern man or woman who's Mm. trapped on Wall Street, 
who's, who's a little cog in the capitalist machine, who's stuck with these brick walls all around him, cut off from nature. This is the way we live now. We live in these little cubicles, these little asbestos cubicles where we uh, don't even you know, see the world outside of us. We're stuck there hour after hour staring into the computer screen. I mean, we are all, to some degree, hmm. uh, the heirs of Bartleby. And this, I think that's why this story, like all classics, takes us and, and rings us and makes us feel uh, extremely exhausted. Every time I read it, I, I almost want to cry. You know, ah, Bartleby, ah, humanity. Uh, you know, and it's not Bartleby we're, we're crying about. It's ourselves we're crying about because Melville makes us sorry about our own damn lives. Jay, you, you, there's something unknowable in this genius Melville. You wrote about him, and I think his wife spoke about him as a volcano. Where is yeah. that heat coming from? Artistic, personal? Well, first of all, two things. First of all, he is a genius. He's a true artist. He's a man who's able to transform the raw materials of his experience into magnificent works of art. Very few people in the history of humanity can do that. Mm. On top of which, he's a very frustrated man, born into a fairly aristocratic American family. Yes. He expected a high career. He was going to go to Harvard. He was going to be a titan of Wall Street himself, a huge man. And what happened? Uh, his father died. The business went bankrupt. He winds up in a, as a minor bank clerk in Albany and uh, finally has to go on a whaling ship to get some, just to make some money and to have a bit of adventure. He said the whaling ship was his Harvard and his Yale. And uh, so he comes back seething with ambition and frustration. At least he marries the daughter of the Supreme Court, Chief Supreme Court Justice of <laughs> Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Yes, yeah, at least that. And then he moves to the Berkshires to write uh, Moby Dick and to be near his beloved Nathaniel Hawthorne. And uh, that didn't go well. So just one thing after another just fizzled out on this man of towering ambition, towering ability, and a really incredible bad luck. F f funny thing, Jay, that you mentioned his father-in-law. He wrote to his father-in-law before Moby Dick, before Bartleby, um, that his heart as an artist did not long for success. He said his earnest desire was to write those sorts of books which are said to fail. An odd thing for a father-in-law to hear, uh, but what's that about? Well, he knew that, that the books, the books of, of great philosophical importance, books that were considerably dense, works of art that were going to require a lot of energy to read, um, are probably always going to fail, at least uh, from the outset. Um, Moby Dick, what did it take? It took a century before people fully appreciated it. I don't think it was until the 1950s that it was considered a true classic and something that every college English major would read. So it took a century for the readership to find its way toward Melville's masterpiece. Even even Bartleby the Scribner, I think it was it was really the 1950s before people were reading it in a, in a large quantity. Mm -hmm. But there's... There's a man, though, who aspires to a certain kind of failure, failure in the marketplace. It anticipates one reading, surely, of Bartleby. I mean, he would have been a very frustrating man to deal with. I mean, I think he also was beset by what he called the Blue Devils. He writes about that in many letters, and the Blue Devils represent his own madness, his own manic depression, 
I, I think if a psychiatrist today were to examine Herman Melville, first thing they would say is uh, bipolar. Clearly, he was crazy on some level. Uh, he said bipolar, he right? said he knew he was mad in a way, but he kept say, telling people, including his wife Anne Hawthorne, "No, I'm not crazy." Well, it was the craziness of genius. I mean, he was a okay. mad man, a mad fool who understood uh, the depths of the human spirit, and this this drove him nuts. Hold it there for the moment. Jay Perini, in residence at Middlebury College, is with us for the hour. Coming up, Bartleby, the mother of all the office fiction you've ever read or seen on television. This is Open Source. Herman Melville's Bartleby makes his appearance in the story as the 1851 version of a clerical temp worker on Wall Street. James Mason recounts the first little breakdown and Bartleby's immortal rejoinder. At first, Bartleby did an extraordinary quantity of writing. As if long famished for something to copy, he seemed to gorge himself on my documents. There was no pause for digestion. He ran a day and night line, copying by sunlight and by candlelight. I should have been quite delighted with his application had he been cheerfully industrious. But he wrote on silently, palely, mechanically. It was on the third day, I think, of his being with me, and before any necessity had arisen for having his own writing examined, that, being much hurried to complete a small affair I had in hand, I abruptly called to Bartleby. Imagine my surprise, nay, my consternation, when, without moving from his privacy, Bartleby, in a singularly mild, firm voice, replied, I would prefer not to. I feel like I understand, or for myself anyway, the significance of him saying I would prefer not to, but which is that it's not saying yes and it's not saying no. It's creating a space outside of the question that the question itself was not affording, which is, is what I find valuable about it. But I think it's also important that you don't know what he means. Like the narrator doesn't know what he means. You don't know what he means. He's referred to as in, inscrutable in one part of the story and not inscrutability and that illegibility, I think, is also a really important part of that resistance. Jenny O'Dell, teaching visual artists in California, makes Bartleby a very modern model of how to fight digital distraction. Her book on the theme is How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And she's picturing Bartleby inside a cult of productivity in Silicon Valley. What are we Bartleby's resisting today? I feel like we are not only asked to constantly consume information right now, but we're also asked to express ourselves constantly. And those are kind of part of the same, same problem. And so weirdly mixed in with that is also this imperative to express your self, like your personal self, like all of your personal experiences, your family, your, you know, like your, hopes and desires. And like all of this is supposed to be on display 24 seven, like this sort of form of production, but it's this kind of like pathologized form of being constantly as legible and invisible and producing expressions as possible. 
Call that the California take on Bartleby today. Nikhil Saval is an Indian-American writer, an editor of N Plus One, and the author of Cubed, The Secret History of the Workplace. He says Bartleby might be the first real star of office literature. Bartleby is the origin of office fiction in some ways because it identifies so many of the themes that we find in later office writing about the office. Things like alienation, dread, the drudgery of office work, the strange environment that office work takes place in. The odd thing, of course, is that Bartleby is written at a time and it's published at a time when office work itself is still novel and still not the dominant idea of what work really is. But I think that's also what made it sort of fascinating to so many people. The fact that offices were strange and Bartleby was the strangest office worker of them all. Mm. Part of the growth of the office was just the specialization of business. You had banks, you had insurance firms, you had shippers, you had merchants. You know, day-to-day business was more and more handled by subordinate staff. Mm. You then have more and more people doing paperwork to handle bookkeeping, uh, accounting, things like that. And that just means more office workers. And for the first time, you would have the growth of particular districts that are devoted to white-collar work. These are called downtowns. That term is an American English term. And the word office also, as uh, these places used to be called counting houses. Mm. And then at some point, office becomes the word roughly around the time that Bartleby is published to describe a particular kind of space where a particular kind of work is done. By the end, Bartleby is sinking and nobody knows how to help him. It's a mystery and we feel a tragedy, a tragedy without a villain, oddly enough. Do you have one? Is the office the villain? It's hard to say. I do want to indict the office. I do want to indict American capitalism. And I think they have a role to play in the degradation and in the decline of Bartleby and in his isolation. There is something to be said for the fact that Bartleby goes to an office trying to do a particular kind of work, and he's good at it, and he does it well. And then when he's asked to do something that is not strictly part of that work, is not strictly necessary, a certain comparing of documents that would in some ways interrupt the copying that he wants to do, he prefers not to. And this sets in a chain of events that, that means that he is no longer part of this workplace and is no longer kind of felt to be a cooperative member of the office. And this continues to be the feature of office discussion for years to come where you feel like people are part of something, but they really don't want to be part of it. Bartleby is a somewhat more extreme instance of this because he he joins, but he does want to stay. He does want to stay in some fashion. He just wants to stay on his own terms. There's something to be said for the way that people can read Bartleby and find find some sense of their own protest in the way that he resists, he's part of. That was Nikhil Saval of N Plus One. Our guest, Wynn Kelly, has taken her own young family on ocean voyages in Herman Melville's wake to Tahiti, for example. She has taught Melville to a generation of MIT students. Who's your Bartleby, Wynn Kelly? And then how do the engineers Um, take him? Oh, I'm so interested in this discussion. It's just wonderful. Um, 
Well, uh, I, I think I want to focus on who is my lawyer, um, because I don't know that I'll yes, ever yes, understand yes. The, the, the narrator. Uh, the narrator, exactly. And and how he, uh, it's more like, uh, ah, lawyer, ah, humanity uh, for me, because I don't think I'll ever understand Bartleby. But I, I wanted to add another layer to this, which is Melville the Professional, uh, and not necessarily a frustrated writer, but a writer trying to get a book out. Um, one of my problems with Bartleby is that we, we don't have much evidence for any of the theories about him. They're, they're wonderfully imaginative responses to the story, but we don't have letters where, Bartle, where Melville says, this is what I meant to write. Right. But we do have this um, wonderful exchange between him and his editor. Uh, so, so Bartleby was the first short story he wrote in 1853, and by 1856 he was preparing a collection of short stories to be published. And um, I had sort of forgotten the fact that when he started out, he wanted to call it by the name of the probably most challenging story in the collection, which was Benito Sereno. Uh, and it's a story about a, a, a revolt, a slave revolt at sea. Uh, and he wanted to call the book Benito Sereno and Other Sketches. Mm. And he wrote to his editor, and he said, this is what I'm doing, and these are the stories. And Bartleby came second in that lineup with Benito Sereno first. But a month later, he wrote to the editor, and he said, uh-uh, change my mind. Now I'm going to call it The Piazza Tales. And I said Piazza because when I was out in Lenox, they said, oh, no, it's not Piazza like the public square. It's Piazza like the porch on your house. And that's how we say it in the Berkshires. <laughs> uh, but he changed the name from Benito Sereno and other sketches to the Piazza Tales. And he said, I'm going to write a new tale to go with the beginning called the Piazza. And after that, Bartleby and then Benito Sereno. I think what happened was he realized that Benito Sereno was a very explosive story, and he right. better not start with it or foreground it in the way he had planned. Uh, so he wrote a story called The Piazza, which is about a man who looks out from his porch up the mountainside, and he sees a lovely glinting light, and he thinks, ah, fairies must live there. I'm going to go find out. So he goes up the mountainside, and when he gets there, it's not fairies. It's a very uh, hard-working young woman named Mariana who's sewing in a rotting cottage which has caught the light from the sun on the phosphorescent rotting wood. And remember, I want to get back to that lawyer, too. Yeah, yeah. So he, he starts off the collection with a piazza instead of something really um, out there like Benito Serrano, which tells me that the problem um, in Bartleby is a character like the one in the piazza who doesn't understand what he's seeing, who's self-deluded. Uh, he thinks he's seeing fairyland, and instead he's seeing um, uh, the truth. And with Bartleby, the lawyer thinks he's seeing um, this poor person who needs his help. He's a really good guy. He's going to help him out. Uh, and he doesn't understand anything about Bartleby. He's and Bartleby doesn't seem to want... Him. Bartleby sorry? never seems to want that decent enough lawyer's help to me, the lawyer is fascinating because he's a man of good intention who's yeah. totally immobilized by the mystery of Bartleby. He, he doesn't have a clue until the very end. What I think yeah. of it, though, just got to throw this out. What if Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, whom Melville must have met and known, is sort of the triumphant model of, of Bartleby, the man who left the community in a way, went to his own, mm -hmm. and declared a radical independence? Isn't that a sort of triumphant... Bartleby. 
Yeah, and uh, Melville even refers to Bartleby as Caius Marius brooding over Carthage as a kind of soldier. I mean, there, there's an extraordinary number of references in the story uh, that suggest a kind of hidden um, insurgency uh, underneath Bartleby's exterior. Uh, so um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with any of the interpretations of Bartleby uh, as many different things. Uh, what I think is missing is the idea that um, it's really the, the, lawyer, the lawyer doesn't get it. And he's, he's, been, he's been cast, a, Bartleby's cast a spell over him. He's enchanted. Exactly. And that's why it's a tale and not a sketch, because a sketch is a newspaper article. Hey, I saw this really interesting scrivener the other day. I'm going to tell you about him. A tale is, my soul was overmastered by this amazing person, and I can't get free of it. <laughs> it's a very different kind of experience. And I think when Melville switched from the sketch to the tale, he was leading his uh, readers somewhat astray. Um, and saying, uh, now we're entering the world of enchantment, and um, we're never going to come out. But but Bartleby is like many people in New York. Uh, he was poor. He had no place to live. He couldn't make money. Uh, he was struggling. And the lawyer pers- never sees that, never can understand it. He has to see him as, as uh, something out of a... Out of a story. Out he, of a, he suggests to me when the kind of depression that disables the people who could help or might help, who love the person. Jay Perini, I want to come back to, I'm so glad we're talking about these non-Moby Dick masterpieces yeah. all. Benito Sereno is one. I call them the three Bs. Bartleby, Benito Sereno, Billy Budd. Bartleby about the crisis of a clerk. Benito Sereno, a masterpiece about a slave rebellion at sea. And Billy Budd about what, the vagaries of, of lust on shipboard among men. Uh, every one of them brilliant. Every one of them filled with uncertainty as well and everyone difficult to interpret. Um, I, I, I like what we're saying here. I like what you said about uh, Henry David Thoreau. I was rereading uh, On Civil Disobedience recently, and that was, I think, published in 1849, so just four, yes. years, bef- just four years before Melville wrote this, and it was circulating in the air in New England and among all these writers, and he would have been familiar with the whole idea that um, Thoreau refused to play, pay his poll tax because of the Mexican War, and he, uh, he basically said, I, re- I prefer not to pay the poll tax. And so Thoreau is in some ways a model for a more positive version of Bartleby. He actually has a, a strong ethical cause, Melville, anti-war. But you wonder if it isn't the model for passive resistance. That's it's passive resistance is mentioned by the narrator in Bartleby, Can I th- and we're see- we're seeing a, a great example of passive resistance here. Can I, I throw out another to- an, another link? Thoreau yeah. gets you to he, he 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 didn't pay his taxes because he because of slavery, and that's why he went to prison. There's a black implication here that some people have seen. Ralph Allison. Mm-hmm most articulately, the pioneering yeah. American novelist of Invisible Man, and he adored Melville. But he mm. saw Bartleby as, in his words, the human factor placed outside the democratic master plan, to wit, black America in the 19th century, and the positive power of repudiation. I think the late Toni Morrison felt much the same way, that there's a play of blackness in the background here. What do you think? And the thing that strengthens that is that the... the all the rhetoric around the, the northern factory workers and the urban um, office workers compared them to, to enslaved people. And Melville picks that up in Paradise of Bachelors and Tartarus of Maids. 
uh, and um, with with many other figures that were that were almost uh, stereotypes of northern labor that people really understood when they read that about a selling person or an, or a, uh, an office worker that, that that they were being compared with slaves. Hmm. Jay Preeny, what is your thought on the anti-capitalist implication here? Moby Dick certainly can be read as fiercely anti-capitalist, but what about this? Well, this lawyer, remember he's a chancery lawyer. It's a very low-grade lawyer who's a cog in the capitalist machine. And so this is not a distinguished lawyer. This isn't a lawyer who's defending uh, defendants who people who need defense. He's a, he's a very low-grade kind of cog in the wheel of this machine. And I think Melville was a prophet. And very early on, he understood that capitalist society was going to grind down an awful lot of people. And so how does one react? One can react like nippers in Turkey, uh, the, the office workers who work with Bartleby, and sort of get, get drunk on the job and basically evade work and, and have to think of all sorts of psychological ruses to get around the fact that you're really oppressed by your, your life and your work. Bartleby stands up to it and says, no, I just don't think I want to do this, and goes absolutely limp and passive. Um, the lawyer has to somehow exactly. understand this. But, but it's not, we speak of him as a figure of resistance, but he's not talking back. He's not offering no. an alternative. He's in some sort of deeper pain than that, I think. Well, the existentialists like Albert, Albert Camus was a great fan of Melville. And I think, uh, and he said that he saw in Bartleby uh, an early version of some of the figures such as the, in The Stranger, who simply cannot cope with reality, can't make a decision, is so alienated that he's actually dumbed down and drummed into a kind of um, strange inability to act in any way. Hmm. That's the existential dilemma that Camus writes about. And he says in a letter to a friend, I, I got this idea from Melville. It's also the comic side of it. I'm always reminded of, of Bartleby's wit when the lawyer says to him, would you like to be more active and go about the countryside making conversation? And he says, no, I prefer to be stationary. And the lawyer just goes berserk because he says, well, you are stationary. And what does the lawyer do but get in his vehicle and ride away and live in his car for a while? Um, so the, Bartleby may seem, you know, pale and hopeless and... and um, um, you know, unmoving, but he has this effect on the lawyer, which is really delightful and and very satirical. I think that's the other side of the the coin we're talking about. He's teasing that lawyer because the lawyer seems to think that this will be good for his reputation that he's yes. extended himself to Melbourne, uh, to right. Barbie. Uh, when Kelly, I want to know what the the young engineer scientists at MIT make of this story. Oh, they're so frustrated <laughs> uh, because they, they, you know, they're they're told that uh, if you go to MIT, you're a problem solver, and uh, uh, Bartleby does not uh, resolve um, in any any satisfying way. Uh, they're also at its age, and I know, you know, Jay Prini, you must be dealing with this as well, where they're thinking about themselves as future employees, hmm. and uh, of course, the things that got them into a place like MIT. Uh, are the very opposite of the traits Bartleby shows. So it's, it's, I think Bartleby is a threat, uh, not only to them, but to many readers, that, that he is so, he's so against the grain that um, it's disturbing to imagine um, being around somebody like that. So you know, I think, I think he's, a, he's a difficult uh, character for them to, to read. Interesting. Um, I'm sure they, they would be able to recommend an antidepressant for him, too. 
Coming up, the writer's nightmare and Bartleby's nightmare out of the dead letter office. This is Open Source. By the end of the story, poor Bartleby has cast himself onto the pavements of New York City. He's been arrested for vagrancy and consigned to the jail in Lower Manhattan known even then as the Tombs. The lawyer who had let him go finds the wasted Bartleby in the prison just minutes after he's breathed his last. And then the lawyer closes with a telling bit of the the Bartleby backstory that has come to him as rumor. The report was this, that Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk in the dead letter office at Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by a change of administration. When I think over this rumor, I cannot adequately express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters. Does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man, by nature and misfortune, prone to a pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? For by the cartload they are annually burned. Sometimes from out the folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for perhaps moulders in the grave. A banknote sent in swiftest charity, he whom it would relieve, nor eats, nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing, hope for those who died unhoping, good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On errands of life, these letters speed to death. Ah, Bartleby. Ah, humanity. And so the story is over. For us to figure out, the shocker is that young Bartleby may have been broken in spirit working in the dead letter office where urgent messages die undelivered. Is that what Bartleby died of? And why does Melville include all of us in the last memorial? Ah, humanity. You first, Jay Perini, biographer and novelist of Herman Melville. Well, I'd say that... um I think of Bartleby as a parable of the artist's life, and the dead letter office is the perfect symbol of this. Here's poor old Herman Melville in his most depressive phase, thinking that he's writing these great works, Moby Dick, Benito Serino, Bartleby, and he's sending them off to readers who are far away, maybe not even existence, like a dead letter to God or something. Um, He's putting messages in a bottle, and they float along in the sea, and maybe centuries later, some reader comes, picks it up, pulls the paper out, and reads the story and understands what's going on. And that's the kind of strange, lonely beauty of this story. I think mm. it really is a parable uh, of the author's life and, and the writer's uh, mission. Wynn Kelly, do you have a thought on, yes, on that I, I humanity the, especially? Yeah, I think it's the most ironic thing Melville might have written. Um, and looking over it again, thinking about this talk, I was just struck by the fact that uh, all the people sending letters are good people. They are sending rings. They are sending money, love and money. Why don't the letters get to the people they're sent to? Uh, and I have to assume that it's because America at this point is a nation of migrants. People are just moving around because they don't have jobs or they can't uh, stay at home on the farm. 
and Bartleby himself moved from Washington to New York uh, to find a job. So, so I think that the, the humanity he's referring to here is one of tremendous insecurity and precarity, and not just in an economic sense, although that's primary, but also in, a, in an existential sense, in a, in a philosophical sense. Uh, so the irony is that um, people had good intentions, but uh, they couldn't help. Uh, the lawyer can't help Bartleby. And it's not because Bartleby uh, isn't uh, a good person or worthy of help. It's because the, he's, he lay, in the middle of the story, he calls it a bit of wreck in the mid-Atlantic. He's just being buffeted mm. about by uh, all of these forces that, uh, that are bigger than him and bigger than the lawyer. And I so agree with Jay Perini about the fact that they're both precarious. They're both... Uh, struggling within this larger system. Hold it there, Wynn, for a moment. Gerald Howard at Doubleday in New York is the sort of esteemed literary editor who might be reading Melville manuscripts if they were being written today. And he has imagined the ego agonies of an artist at Melville scale confronting a commercial publisher. There is a very famous letter that Melville wrote to Hawthorne in 1951. Melville wrote to Hawthorne, Dollars damn me. And the malicious devil is forever grinning in upon me, holding the door ajar. What I most feel moved to write, that is banned. It will not pay. Yet altogether write the other way, I cannot. So the product is the final hash, and all my books are botches. And he goes on later to say, though I wrote the Gospels in this century, I should die in the gutter. That's about as bitter an author's letter as exists in American literature. It's a pretty sobering uh, example that you could write a complicated but indisputable masterpiece like Moby Dick and have it not only not sell, but torpedo your career. You've edited difficult writers. Yes, like David Foster Wallace, Don DeLillo. Thomas Pynchon in there somewhere, William Volman. Have you ever met a writer in pain about meeting the market, about being commercial, maybe even figuring that's not his best work? Yeah, every one I've ever published. Wow. <laughs> I mean... How does I it mean, sound? Anxiety? I mean, there's the, the writer's anxiety in respect to the reception of his or her work is probably one of the keenest forms of anxiety that you could possibly experience. You've got to Uh, spell that out. Let's see. We have the psyche and the bank account. I don't know (laughs) what other kind of anxiety would you want. I mean, ego. We want to stand proud among your, your peers. Melville, in that respect, is like every other American writer, you know, trying to create art and make a living from creating art in a civilization that is commercial in nature and that has attenuated attention span. What I want to emphasize is the heroism of Herman Melville. But are you coming are you coming home to that notion that that Bartleby was Melville? So it, it was his way of saying through a story, I would prefer not to write my books that are not Uh, being understood by the rest of you. That was Gerald Howard at Doubleday. Wynn Kelly and Jay Perini, hasn't the coin dropped in that last graph of the story? Melville, as a young man still, but meditating on his own heroic output 
the work of his life ending up in the dead letter office. Moby Dick had sold fewer than 3,000 copies at that point. Letters and language speeding to death, as he said. Jay Perini, you go for it. Yeah, well, it only got worse, shall we say. Um, right after Moby Dick, he wrote Pierre, which is in many ways uh, his least read and in many ways, in some ways, most uh, difficult novel, which had even fewer readers, I think, than Moby Dick. And so Melville looked ahead at this vast prospect of unsuccess he was going to be a failure in the eyes of his father-in-law who would keep have to would have to finance him he was a failure in the eyes of his wife lizzie he could barely support his own children his sister and mother were living with him and he wasn't happy about that his friend nathaniel hawthorne had sort of given up on him and left the berkshires and fled to england rather than be around the difficult melville mm. so he was he was a man who felt alienated from his own social class his world and his dream of being you know the american homer was going nowhere at a fast pace and i somehow bartleby collects all that anxiety uh, between the lines and on the pages and that I prefer not to just keep sounding again and again. It's like a, a gong on a lonely sea. We can hear that buoy going back and forth and the bell ringing. He's, he's alienated not least from that conquered circle of which he was a major part. He, he, he made fun of Emerson in the, con, in the confidence band, it, it's generally felt. But right. it's still puzzled whether Emerson ever summoned the energy to read Moby Dick. Win Kelly... Where are we? Well, I think um, it's so great to be talking about Bartleby um, in terms of Melville's whole life because it was such a turning point for him, as, as you've just pointed out, uh, a turning point away from the big novels towards shorter forms. And I want to keep in mind that he was moving through short story writing onto poetry, which uh, uh, some critics have argued was what he really wanted to do from the beginning. And you described um, Moby Dick as a prose poem at the beginning. Uh, and I, I think that's right. I think that's uh, Harold Bloom who told me that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Herschel Parker's made the same argument in a book about Melville's poet. Um, so, you know, I, I, what I admire is, is the heroism that, that uh, Gerald Howard talked about uh, and the way that Melville kept going um, through all of this uh, anxiety and distress onto amazing things. And, and he, he, with every form, he reinvented it and renovated it. There is no story like Bartleby. So I see it as, as a tremendous challenge to him and one that he, um, he just uh, went at with all of his, his uh, heart and soul. I'd like to ask you both, again in the context of a whole life, to stand back and, especially in these post-Moby Dick stories, see the prophetic quality of his interest. In Moby Dick, he has written about nature, about men at sea, about the tyranny of of Ahab. And in these stories, he is anticipating all the things that we're still preoccupied with. This existential crisis, race most specially uh, in Benito Serino, and then all the mysteries of sex in, in, in Billy Budd. I mean, hats off to this almost unexplainable volcano, in your term, Jake Perini. Yeah, when you think that his career ends with the unfinished Billy Budd, which is, to me, the most heartbreaking, poignant story, a story with a lot of compressed, 
complicated sexual energy, a, a, a really yes. eth- ethically complicated story. I mean, he went out on a great note with Billy Budd, and and uh, it's possibly, you know, right, it's right up there with uh, Benito Serino. It's right up there with Billy Budd, and in some ways up there with Moby Dick, just in a very different way. But it was prophetic. I mean, on every level, whether he's talking about race, American capitalism, yes. whether he's talking about American ambition, which is both financial ambition, but also in Moby Dick, I think, spiritual extravagance. It's all there. That transcendental moment is happening in Melville every day of the week as he sits at his desk. Um, The spirit is rushing through him, and he can't stop it. He has no control over it, and it's why we revere him and why he's kind of an American holy man. Just to say, Harold Bloom, I'm sure it was who first gave me the notion of a prose poem. He also Mm. remarked that Melville is alone on the pinnacle with Walt Whitman. Contemporaries, both very familiar with all of Manhattan, and yet, except in your novel, Jay Perini, they never meet. Yes, I couldn't resist it. In my novel, I have them meet, and I have have Whitman plant a big kiss on the lips of Herman Melville. Look, they were both born in Lower Manhattan in the same year, 1819. They would have moved in the same physical circles, round and round. Uh, and they are the two giants of the American Renaissance period. So um, why not think of them meeting? But they probably they might have brushed. Uh, they probably stood next to each other at a bar and didn't speak. <laughs> Recognizing each other or not? Right. And probably not even recognize because both were fairly unknown. Remember that. Um, you know, Whitman was far more, far better known than Melville. Melville sailed into complete obscurity. I mean, when he died, there was a one-line obituary in the New York Times, and they they called him Henry Melville. They spelled his name wrong. They got his name wrong. Are there any other ways we want to interpret this story? I'm thinking of um, one reading makes this Melville's parable of walls, walls more than Wall Street, that there's Bartleby looking at a blank brick wall of an air shaft. He's the walled man facing class barriers, perhaps. Hey, there's walls all around him. There's, there's a big financial wall. He can't cross that barrier of class. Class is a wall. Money is a wall. Even language is a wall. He can't speak his problem. So language becomes a huge wall. And it's so prophetic in the fact that we all, as Americans in the 21st century, so many of us work stand looking up at a blank wall. Um, so that's one of the huge themes of this story that can't be denied. Do we have I a... Cons- Sorry, too, when, when a, um, An abstract image, the white wall, the black wall, the green folding screen. Uh, it seems as if uh, Bartleby is almost a pre-Cubist at that point. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And taking what's uh, social or, or philosophical about the situation and just turning it into... Um, planes, uh, very clear, abstract, integral planes. Uh, there's something very modern about it. I like that. Or you could almost think of the wall as a Rothko. You look at it and it keeps yeah. deepening and darkening. You know what I mean? Looking at a purple painting that just grows on you as you watch it. Mm-hmm. Who, who's the cubist child of, of Melville's imagination, Win? <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, well, uh, um, uh, I guess I was thinking of Mondrian, the way his... Yes, his, the uh, colors, the color uh, scheme. The colors and also the, just the, the geometric shapes become a way of rendering truth 
that's so uncompromising. I, I think that Melville looked at Bartleby and just saw uh, a, a kind of a, an abstract idea that, that was so pure mm. and beautiful. Uh, he didn't want to um, elaborate on it. Do we have I a consensus? Do we have a consensus at the end of the hour that Bartleby is Melville in some multiple varieties of the artist, uh, uh, the man aspiring, uh, immensely frustrated that the messages are not getting through? Oh, it's certainly, I think Bartleby is to a huge degree Melville, but because it's so prophetic and so profound, Bartleby is also Rosa Parks, who, when they say, go to the back, when she goes to the back and say, go to the back of the bus, she says, I prefer not to. And it's that passive note of resistance, but defiance. And somehow in the face of massive oppression and alienation, you simply stand up. You don't say, you don't throw a finger. You don't throw a, a, a firebomb. You simply say, I prefer not to. And that's a note that fueled the entire civil rights movement in the U.S. I'm so glad you mentioned Rosa Parks. Either one. I would say that uh, he poses Bartleby and the lawyer to suggest that there's a third term. There's something which is neither one or the other. Because he, in the end, Bartleby is pitiful, and he doesn't succeed. And I don't think Melville identifies with that. I'm glad to hear Rosa Parks because the gesture is, and the silence is very similar. And, again, it's that that echo of race, of... of yeah. The, uh, and, and the, I would say race and rage. There is a rage in Bartleby that's masked by the passive sentence, I prefer not to. Yeah. Um, again, that's, that was, I think, what Toni Morrison felt, that there's an air, there's a thread of blackness in Melville, perfectly appropriate in a country where race in 1851, in 2019, is always there. Thank you, Jay Perini and Wynne Kelly. Thanks also to Jenny O'Dell, Gerald Howard, and Nikhil Saval, and to David Davis, who pointed us to James Mason's amazing reading. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our not Bartley. Bartleby, I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time for Open Source. <laughs>